The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Thank you, choir, and again, thank you for Friday night, which was stunning. I, I love American hymnody, and what we were treated to um, on Friday night was just stellar. I just was food for my soul, and I am grateful. I also want to point out something that I saw this morning that I get a unique perspective on things that happen sometime, and as our children were standing up here, and when we got to that place in the baptismal service where we stand up and we welcome the new child when we say the words that are printed in the bulletin with joy and thanksgiving, we welcome you into Christ's church, for we are all one in Christ, the children were saying those words. They had no bulletins. The things that seep into our children in this space will be with them for the rest of their lives. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. May the peace of God be with you. It's a powerful thing. Something we just, those words are so important. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds that amid all the cacophonous words of this generation, we might hear your truth, and in hearing it, that we might respond. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning, we conclude our midwinter sermon series on God and war. In this series, we have identified resources in the Christian tradition that can help us interpret acts of state-sponsored violence, violence initiated by our own country and violent acts carried out by other states, organizations, shadowy groups. As a reminder, after worship today, we have organized a blue ribbon panel of Fifth Avenue Church members, those who've served in the military and those who've worked on peace initiatives to lead us in conversation. So today, I invite you right after this service to head upstairs to Bunnell Hall, bring your appetite for good food and stimulating dialogue as Dr. Charlene Han Paul moderates an all church forum on God and violence. For the past three weeks, we have been wrestling with ethically complicated questions. We started by asking, what does God think about violence? And to answer, we looked at two threads in the Christian tradition. Thread number one goes like this. God is an emancipating warrior. And this image occurs both in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. God 
the holy warrior frees people from bondage and fights against the powers of evil. If you tug on thread number one, you will find a God who is willing to pick up a sword and wield it against those who would do violence to the downtrodden. Thread number two raises critical questions about thread number one. In these texts from the good book, God laments people's bloodthirsty ways and personally swears off using violence. You can see this thread in the writings of the prophet Hosea. In Hosea chapter 11, God declares, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This, my friend Walter Brueggemann argues, looks to be a God in recovery from violence. Last week, we explored both of these threads in the work of two American theologians, Reinhold Niebuhr and Stanley Hauerwas. Niebuhr, while suspicious of violence and its contaminating power, makes the case for using violence in the fight against evil. On the other hand, Hauerwas argues quite rigorously that any use of violence is a betrayal of the ethic of peace that Jesus both preaches and models. Today, we continue our conversation by exploring some of the other related issues to these two threads. First, by considering the collateral costs of violence, and second, by looking at the ways in which we perpetuate cycles of violence. And finally, we will consider this morning the challenge that Christ puts before his disciples in regard to violence. To guide us in this conversation, we're going to enlist the help of two passages from Scripture. The first comes from the book of Judges. It's a song. All of Judges chapter 5 is a song, a victorious war whoop of a song voiced by the prophetess Deborah. Deborah's song describes the aftermath of a battle in which the tribes of Israel triumph over a warlord named Sisera. Her song describes Sisera's chariots being washed away in a river torrent, and it celebrates the final blow that fells the warlord at the hand of a woman named Jael. Listen now for God's word to you. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The onrushing torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse, Moroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse, 
bitterly its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the Almighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a lordly bowl. She put her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera a blow. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. He sank, he fell, he lay still at her feet. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera gazed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariot? Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. This is basically the first paragraph of the sermon for which Christ is most famous, the Sermon on the Mount. Listen again for God's word to you. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Before Israel became a monarchy, before the people were ruled over by kings like Saul and David and Solomon, they were nomads, wanderers, pilgrims in a foreign land. At this time in their history, the Israelites were led by judges. The judges were charismatic leaders. They were military champions. They were prophets who spoke of God's will. Early in the book of Judges, we hear the story of one such figure, Deborah. During Deborah's time, the Israelites, and at this point in history, I want you to, to picture a collection of, of nomadic tribes eking out subsistence with, with flocks of sheep. During this time, the Israelites lived under the shadow of King Jabin of Cana and his brutal military commander, Sisera. For 20 years, Sisera and his 
900 chariots of iron patrolled the land. They took what they wanted from the Israelite settlers. When Sisera and his gang thundered into camp, they would plunder and pillage, taking stores of grain and, and livestock and even people to satiate their voracious appetites. Finally, the day came when Deborah, a prophetess, declared that Sisera's brutal oppression must end. Deborah seeks out an Israelite warrior, Barak, son of Abinoam, and she tells Barak, the Lord has spoken. The time has come to defeat Sisera. God will deliver this enemy into your hand. So Barak assembles an army and marches off to war. And eventually he comes face to face with Sisera on the banks of the Kishon River. There, Deborah's song begins. She describes a, a cosmic battle alongside the Kishon. The stars, Deborah sings, even, even the stars fought on behalf of the Israelites. The, the waters of the river, they rose up to do battle too. Aided by, by heaven and nature, Barak's army easily vanquishes the forces of Sisera. Sisera's chariots were, were smashed, his horses ran away, his men were slaughtered, and Sisera mighty Sisera fled. In a panic, Sisera ran to a, to a nearby encampment, to, to a few tents belonging to people that he believed were allies. Uh, watching the general approach, a woman named Jael poked her head out of a tent flap and, and motioned Sisera inside. You can hide in here. There, in the comfort of her home, she, she fed the commander a bowl of cottage cheese and, and covered him with a rug. Exhausted from battle, Sisera fell asleep. As his eyelids flickered shut, Jael walked over to her toolbox. Now, Scripture doesn't give us a whole lot when it comes to Jael's backstory, but it makes one thing pretty darn clear. This formidable woman wanted to rid the world of Sisera. With a hammer and a tent peg, she creeps up to the sleeping man, measures her blow, and with a ferocious clang, drives a spike through his skull. Sisera, mighty Sisera, brutal robber, oppressor of the people, pinned to the ground by a woman, dead dead as a tent peg. This, the book of Judges observes, is how God subdued the Canaanites. As a youth in the small Presbyterian church that my family attended in central Minnesota, there was a recessed balcony at the back of the sanctuary that the church used as a youth room. The congregation had furnished the balcony with cast-off couches and recliners, most of them, if memory is correct, orange. Ah, the 70s. <laughs> Teens were allowed to sit up there during worship, and the architecture of the building was such 
that those reclining in the balcony could not be seen by the rest of the congregation. We were safe from potentially scolding eyes. We were apart, but still in worship with the rest of the community. The youth's hidden location meant that whenever the sermon was dull, which was far too often in our opinion, we would entertain ourselves by pulling out a Bible and introducing the youngest members in our cohort to some of the more provocative stories in scripture. We favored stories that had one, a high gross out factor, and two, raised questions about the sanity of God and God's followers. The saga of Jael and Sisera was a perennial favorite. Are you prepared, my friend Patrick would ask, to pound a tent spike through your enemy's skull? God, he would say to a wide-eyed 13-year-old, God asks people to do stuff like that. Just look. <laughs> Today's passage from Judges is legitimately shocking. Jael dispatches Sisera with deviousness and violence. Then, even as his blood soaks into the ground, Deborah praises Jael. She calls her most blessed of women, a phrase that, that echoes through scripture and eventually will be heard on the lips of the angel Gabriel. Of course, Jael and Mary, the mother of Jesus, are blessed for very different reasons. Some argue that Jael is deemed blessed because her story captures a, a central message in the book of Judges. It goes like this. God, God uses surprising people to deliver justice, even violent justice, to those who oppress God's people. Indeed, this is one of the messages that gets repeated airtime in this corner of Scripture. But it's not the only truth that this passage holds. I would also draw your attention to the conclusion of today's text, Judges 5.28. It reads like this. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera gazed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? In this verse, Deborah engages in an act of sacred imagination in, in singing about military triumph and the defeat of a mortal enemy, Deborah also imagines Sisera's mother looking out her window, gazing through a lattice, waiting for her son to come home. There's deep poignancy in her words, in the question spoken by Sisera's mother. Why is his chariot so long in coming? We know the answer. In this way, the book of Judges offers us a subtle reminder. Violence always comes 
at a cost. Even as Deborah celebrates Sisera's death, she sees its price. We ignore scenes like this at our peril. It's too easy, my friends. It's, it's just too darn easy to watch a news report describing a drone strike in a far-off land and to conclude that we now have an antiseptically clean 21st century way to address evil. Do we? <laughs> Deborah's song reminds us that every celebrated act of violence is also a source of grief for someone else. Every sniper's bullet, every predator-launched missile has the potential for triggering more hatred, for perpetuating an ongoing cycle of violence and revenge. The mother of Sisera, framed in her window, reminds us that far from the explosions, there are others weighing the cost of violence and thinking about their response. There's another cost associated with state-sponsored violence that we really do not like to talk about. I'm speaking, of course, about the burdens borne by our warriors, by veterans who have served in combat. In 1968, Tim O'Brien earned his BA degree from McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, my wife's alma mater. He was student body president that year. That same summer, he was drafted into the Army and was sent to Vietnam, where he served in the infantry. Returning from that war, O'Brien became one of the most compelling, I think, writers when it comes to capturing the realities of war and the burdens borne by soldiers. In one of O'Brien's best short stories entitled the, the Things They Carried, The Things They Carried, he describes a platoon of Marines on patrol in Southeast Asia. It, it's not your typical story because, because instead of laying out characters and plot and dialogue, O'Brien simply provides us with an inventory, an extended list of all the things that one platoon hauled around with them during the Vietnam War. They carried pocket knives, salt tablets, helmets, dog tags, mosquito repellent, toilet paper, sea rations, and canteens of water, necessary items weighing 15 to 20 pounds, depending on a man's metabolism. They carried code books, binoculars, medical kits, gas-operated automatic rifles, ammunition, plastic explosives, flak jackets, and fragmentation grenades. They carried the means of killing. They carried photographs of family members, good luck charms, comic books, and letters from sweethearts, things from home. They carried alcohol and cigarettes and drugs and the gruesome souvenirs of war 
things to wedge against the door of despair. They carried pride and hope, aggression and fear, the inner life of the soldier. In a way, given their dangerous duties, these soldiers could not carry enough. In a, in a way, they carried much too much. The list of physical, mental, spiritual weights hauled around by these Marines stretches on and on. And as it does, O'Brien's story etches two points on a reader's mind. First, you can learn a lot about someone just by looking at the things that she or he carries. And second, the burdens of war are tremendous. We simply cannot forget when we ask soldiers to enter combat that we are asking them to carry these burdens for the rest of their lives. And I'm not, of course, talking about stuff that fits in a backpack. There's more to be said about God and violence, and I really hope that you're going to go upstairs after this service and add to the conversation uh, in Bunnell Hall, led by Charlene. I want to conclude today and conclude this small series by acknowledging something that I think is fairly simple, but also pretty darn important for our work as Christ's disciples. And this simple thing, or perhaps obvious thing, goes like this. Very few people in a society like ours are entrusted with decisions about going to war or about using violence in more restricted and perhaps clandestine ways. So what are we to do? First, as Christians, I believe it is our responsibility to hold our officials, both our military leaders and even more important, our politicians, to the highest standards of honesty, decency, and honor in these matters. I say this because while our religious tradition varies in its willingness to embrace violence, it is never shy about saying that leaders must be held accountable. We must not shirk this sacred responsibility or muzzle our voices when sabers begin to rattle. We must do our homework, we must study the situation and our tradition, and we must be prepared to speak out in faith to our communities and our society. And I know what price that costs today. You lift your head up above the trenches and you're going to get shot at. Second, when it comes to human conflict, we must remember the message that we found last week in the book of Joshua. Remember, Joshua's out there. He encounters this figure with a sword. He says, whose side are you on, my side or my adversary's side? 
and it turns out to be an angel, the commander of the armies of the Lord, and his response is, neither. <laughs> I'm on God's side. God, it turns out, has an agenda. Every army that has ever marched to war claims that God is on their side. But, as Abraham Lincoln recognized, claims like that are both logically implausible and theologically arrogant. So when the president was asked if God was on the side of the Union Army in the Civil War, he responded, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. What does it mean to be on God's side? As people of faith, that needs to be our persistent question, right? It's not a question we want to leave to others. Every morning, every evening, every conflict we find ourselves in, we ought to ask, what does it mean to be on God's side? And naturally, in answering that question, we, who would call ourselves Christian, must look to Jesus. When it comes to human conflict, Jesus, my friends, doesn't waffle about the disciples' responsibility. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Be peacemakers. Christ assigns us an absolutely gargantuan task. Honestly, seeking peace in our relationships, in our families, on our Facebook pages, in our workplaces, in our schools, on the sixth train at rush hour, seems well nigh impossible. It is worse than impossible when you turn on the news. To repeat a diagnosis that is so doggone tired because it's so doggone true, our country is perilously divided. Our leaders cannot utter a civil, much less a peaceful word to each other. Anyone who stands in the center is viciously attacked, and November, my friends, is a long, long way away, and it's not going to solve all this. It feels like we've settled into the trenches for an extended season of escalating vitriol, and at times... At times, I worry that the unchecked rhetoric of this moment will encourage violence, perhaps I should say encourage more violence against individuals and groups on whom pundits and even some preachers heap their scorn. What are we supposed to do? This past week, I put that question to my friend Tom R., and Tom responded very wisely, I think. He said, Scott, it takes no courage to identify the wrong in someone else and to lift it up and ridicule it. It takes no courage to identify the wrong in somebody else. On the other hand, it takes a lot of courage and holy imagination to see the good in others, especially others 
on the other side of the battle lines. Blessed, blessed, says Jesus, are the peacemakers. This, my friends, is the challenge that Christ sets before us. Make peace. Make peace today. Make peace tomorrow. Make peace with your friends. Make peace with your enemies. Roll up your sleeves. Make peace. Now, true confession time. There is something in me that recoils at Christ's call to peace. Maybe it's there in you, too. There's something warped in me that sees peace as simpering and weak. After all, my ego wants to win. When I get hit, when I get hurt, I want to counterpunch. I want to extinguish my foes. I want to hurt back because that feels good. It feels justified. Heck, it just feels natural. But I'm here this morning to tell you it is in no way courageous. It is in no way courageous to follow the dictates of my hurt pride or my self-righteous anger. To be courageous, truly courageous in this hour, is to embrace work that will have you swallow your ego, pull out your hair, and yes, shake your enemy's hand. To be courageous, to be God's children, is to wrap ourselves in a virtue that our hearts have learned to despise. It is to embrace peace. And this will not be easy. You know what it's like out there. It will not be easy. But of course, my friends, the alternative ain't pretty. You don't need to look at the cover of today's bulletin to know that, do you? Go from this place, and as you go, may God grant you peace. Dona nobis pacha. May you go trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another in the power and solidarity of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.